listening to a Drishti Point podcast. Please visit our website for more inspiring interviews on yoga, spirituality, and wellness. You're listening to a special Drishti Point podcast. I'm Martina Bell, and I'm here with Angela Kaira. We're directors of Inline School of Yoga, and our guest today is Rod Stryker. Rod Stryker has taught for more than 30 years, and he is a leading voice for the ancient traditions, an accomplished yogi, teacher, lecturer, and writer. He offers Yoga for Fulfillment courses, and Rod is the author of The Four Desires, Creating a Life of Purpose, Happiness, Prosperity, and Freedom. The Four Desires is what inspired us to have Rod on Drishti Point today, and we are deeply honored to have him as a guest on the program. So the Purushatas are the template for the Four Desires. For listeners who are not familiar with the Purushatas or AIMS, could you please define them? Sure, I'd be happy to. First, let me just uh, thank you both for inviting me to be part of this uh, interview and uh, contribute to Drishti Point. You guys... Um, really do um, go uh, draw amazing voices in the spiritual and yoga traditions in. So I'm very pleased to be part of it and with you today. You, um, you're, you're asking about the Purushartas, and the Purushartas are an ancient teaching of the yoga tradition, even predating uh, Patanjali. Um, and the Purusharta, literally, the literal meaning of that word is for the purpose of soul. Purusha meaning soul, arta meaning purpose in this context. And what it refers to is that each of us um, are born and really actually conceived with uh, four inherent desires. And these are actually part of the soul's drive to be and to become. And uh, the, they, they actually scan the, all of the possible desires that are uh, within, human, within human nature. The first of which is the, and which is the primary one, the preeminent one, is the desire to be fully ourselves, to fulfill our potential, to fully flower and, and really be what we were meant to be. And that desire is called dharma. Um, <clears throat> the second desire is to have the means to fulfill our dharma. And in this context, that's, that word is artha. So this refers to financial well-being or financial security, uh, physical health, and it also refers to all of the tools that we use to fulfill our dharma. So in this context, if the three of us today are in this interview are doing something that is consistent with our dharma, uh, well, Skype is actually arta. It means that we're using this tool to fulfill our desire, to fulfill our soul's purpose. Uh, the third desire is for kama, which is, um, at first glance, this is sensual desire and pleasure. And more specifically, it is pleasure. And uh, it refers to fellowship and friendship, and beauty, art, music, sensuality, sexuality. But the larger view of Kama is that this actually refers to the drive for pleasure itself. Even the drive to accomplish things ultimately is motivated by pleasure, say the Vedas. And so, uh, and Kama even has one more uh, element to it, which suggests that the initial impulse of the creator to bring life into existence, or to create creation, as it were, it was actually motivated or sparked by Kama. So it's the primordial desire of creation as well. And this final desire, the final desire is called moksha, and most yoga students are familiar with it. This is the one that refers to spiritual 
connection, uh, freedom, or liberation. And uh, I would just, because it's often interpreted a certain way, I would just try and clarify people's, perhaps their understanding of it, and say, it really isn't the drive to become disembodied. What really moksha is, according to the ancient tradition, is the drive to live fully and yet not be burdened by life, to be fearless, and to wake up every day joyful and in an unburdened way. Now, if you look at the span of those four desires, you really look at the span of, of human consciousness, of everything that motivates us. Uh, and uh, the, the essential teaching that comes from, the, say, the ancient texts, like the Mahabharata and the Bhagavad Gita, you could say the Bhagavad Gita is just a long text about the, uh, about the first of those four desires, Dharma. Um, what they're saying is that to the extent that we follow and honor them, um, we will live a full and balanced life, and we will contribute to the world as well as to our own seeking of uh, fulfillment of our potential. And so it's a vital teaching of the yoga tradition, and... Um, and that, as you mentioned, that is in fact the the, the blueprint for the book uh, for desires. Thank you. Mm-hmm. So you just mentioned that um, the Purushartas, uh means for the purpose of the soul. Um, traditionally, they're also defined as the four aims of life, or the individual pursuits, or purpose of the soul. Why did you feel it was important to frame them as as desires? You know, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a good question. In fact, they are, um, uh, defined in different ways as aims, as, um, as you described, this idea of, um, implicit is that they are related to the soul. You know, um, the thing that I wanted to try and do is try and begin to, um, look at the yoga, like let's say the yoga tradition, or even most Eastern contemplative traditions, so including the Buddhist tradition as well, and there's a, there's a really quite a tremendous amount of conflict when you even mention the word desire mm-hmm. in these traditions. Mm-hmm. Um, it's almost as though if you have desires, uh, you're not spiritual. And, mm-hmm. I, you know, I would begin to counter this by saying, you know, the fact is that all of us were compelled by some desire uh, prior to us beginning yoga. Um, a teacher I deeply respect, and is one of the most important teachers of this past century, um, um, Deskachar, who's the son of Krishnacharya, he said that the first step of yoga is the desire to be better. And uh, so part of it is, I tr- and, and it's what I devote a, uh, the front end of the book to a little bit, is try and begin to discern exactly what desire is. And rather than try and say, well, desire is inherently negative. And aim is inherently positive. Let's just stop with this kind of idea around that and just understand that essential to all of us is the desire deep down. It are these four aims or desires. And rather than try and still keep this idea that desire is inherently negative, I try and remind people, well, what about the desire to practice every day? What about the desire to be charitable? What about the desire to say, raise for money for a worthwhile cause? What about the desire to um, uh, leave a, a, a creative legacy? The tricky part, and, and Buddha was very clear about this, he never went out of his way to dis- discern aim versus desire. What Buddha did, his language was, wholesome and unwholesome desires. In the, in the yoga tradition, you have, in the Vedic, even older, in the Vedic tradition, you have two words, 
Satya Kama and Asatya Kama. Kama meaning desire. Sat meaning truth or righteous. And Asat meaning non-righteous. So, um, therefore, uh, and if I looked in the, when I did the research for the book, I, I found in the Upanishads, they even go a little bit further in uh, trying to pull us out of this good and bad desire mindset. And they go so far as to say, is the fulfillment of certain desires is pleasurable, whereas the, the fulfillment of other desires is helpful. And so, obviously, what we are trying to do through yoga, and this is what I would make the case, is really the purpose of yoga practice, is to clear our minds, be tranquil, reach a level of tranquility and clarity, so that we can discern for ourselves which desires need to be acted on, which ones are helpful, and which ones, in fact, uh, only contribute to pleasure. And when we begin to have that kind of understanding, that purposefulness around a yoga practice, we really begin to not only use yoga as it's meant to be used, but we truly begin to fulfill our unique potential, and by doing so, uh, contribute to the greater whole of which we are all a part. In the Four Desires, you weave both the wisdom of the Vedas and the wisdom of Tantra, and there's many misconceptions about tantric philosophy. How would you define tantra? <laughs> wow. Well, how much time do we have? Yeah, I know exactly. <laughs> uh, you know, there are, like like most uh, like many Sanskrit terms, tantra is uh, one of those words that has a tremendous amount of meaning mm -hmm. and different meanings depending on its context, depending on where you put it, what's next to it, and even of course, if I try and define Tantra, I'm doing my best to give a span, but there are many a span of the whole uh, survey of what Tantric science is and Tantric tradition is. But the truth is that there are various traditions and lineages that will have their own uh, take on it. But I can make some generalizations about it. Well, what we do know is the word Tantra is actually made up of two words. Tan means to stretch and expand. Ta means beyond limitations. So this meaning of the word Tantra is to move beyond all confinement, to move beyond all boundaries. Um, the meaning of the word also Tra, Tantra, also means to protect. So implicit in that is in the process of expansion, we are also innately protected. So it means uh, another meaning of it, this means to, leads to another meaning, which is Tantra means method. It also means, or technique. It also means science. In India, the word is used in non-spiritual traditions in, in, in various contexts, one of which is they call their political parties tantras. It means that each, each political party, if you will, is a uh, system. They see it as a system, whether it's democracy or communism or, or um, even royalty. Um, uh, so the idea of tantra is system. And then finally, I think the most relevant one, and evidently is the most ancient use of the word tantra, is to weave. Uh, and this really speaks to the spirit of tantric practice, which is, ultimately, it is the techniques. I'll try and bring all of those things together. It's the techniques that we practice, uh, that we apply, um, that allow us to grow and expand in such a way as we weave spiritual experience into the fabric of everyday life. Where we are experiencing spiritual 
prosperity and abundance, at the same time experiencing it in a worldly way. I can say um, that all tantric traditions, are, are their intention is to bring the sacred into the everyday, the everyday into the sacred, and ultimately to remove the wall in our life experience between, that separates our worldly existence and our spiritual existence. The tantrics were particularly uh, focused on how those two things could be brought together, how everyday life could become sacred. There's a, there's a, a key tantric maxim, if you will, that says what is here, meaning life, is everywhere, and what is not here is nowhere. What they were trying to do is say, this very life, our very existence, is heaven. Don't don't wait for heaven in the afterlife. It's here. And what the tantric traditions generally do is they see that we're not experiencing heaven in this world. And it's a, not an easy world to experience heaven in. I think many of us would acknowledge that. You know, or maybe already listeners are starting to say, well, wait a minute, this is not heaven. I mean, there's so much conflict, there are wars. There's disease, there's so many things that are far from what I attribute to heavenly. But if you look at the great masters, look at the great masters and look at their perception of the world and worldly existence, and they say they saw God, or they saw the ultimate reality, everywhere, even in suffering. And so what the Tantra tradition says is that whether your intention is to um, uh, achieve something significant, uh, achieve material success, or to achieve a deep, profound spiritual uh, experience, either way, the key thing to get you there is shakti, or power. And tantra has actually been called, at various times, it's actually been called shakti sadhana, which means, sadhana means practice, and it means specifically the practice that builds power. And the power we're talking about is the power of soul, or divine power. And they say you need that to overcome the challenges there are in the world. You need power. And you also need power to overcome your own internal obstacles to unfold your fullest nature. If I can just say one more thing about it, um, and having taught, uh, having been learned really under two great masters. My first master was a South African tantric. I stayed with him until he was about 90, until 97. She was 97. He passed away about um, 11 years ago. And my second master, um, Pandit Rajmani Tuganayat, um, I can tell you that uh, from my vantage point, one thing that tantra is not and cannot be, it is not something... In other words, what I see in the, in the new age, if you will, is people use tantra as a for making stuff up. They just make stuff up. They, they combine massage, they combine music, they combine uh, or God knows what, and they call it tantra. And, you know, that, that, that's so disheartening to me because I can tell you that the science itself is so sublime uh, and and its power and its reach is so profound. Uh, depending on how much time we have, I can tell you some stories about the formulations that were developed hundreds, thousands of years ago um, about using mantra, using visualization, using ancient ancient techniques that were developed over millennia 
to create profound change, both internally and externally. The tantric yogis in this kind of methodology are the kinds of techniques that are used to what we would describe as defying the laws of nature, creating kind of miracles, or even in magic. And, you know, in the West, because of the some of the charlatans and some of the people who really have not received in any tradition, our kind of misunderstanding of tantra is just that it's sex. It's yoga plus sex or something like that. It's interesting because in India, people are also confused. And in India, tantra is actually considered to be a form of black magic. The point is that they're neither, and that when you eat, you study, or you have a chance to learn under a real, a true tradition of tantric practice and lineage, where you find it is that it is a sacred art that has um, practically limitless potency to affect both internal and external um, shifts in our experience. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Rod, for such a detailed answer because there's definitely a lot of confusion around um, the term uh, Tantra. In practical terms, what advice would you offer to somebody who is living um, a householder path yet wants to incorporate more spirituality into their more material and definitely embodied existence? Wow, that's quite a question. Again, I could ask how much time do we have? I think, I think, I think, I think the simple thing is, the simple thing is it begins from a worldview. You know, we just discussed Tantra. I mean, Tantra has a worldview. I mean, it really is important that we understand what our view of the world is. Tantra, as I said, describes the world that you and I live in as, as not just benign, but actually exquisite or beautiful. And the word of surety comes to mind. Surety meaning resplendent. And so partially we have to, even if, even if necessary, begin to make a point of, de- of deciding ourselves. This is the word is sankalpa. Making the resolve that we will find beauty in our life, irrespective of what's happening in it. There is beauty in the world. And we've seen various spiritual masters who have given testament to that who have provided testimony of that experience. So the first thing is, refine your worldview. And uh, <clears throat> do you live in a dualistic world, or in fact, this world made by an underlying reality that is inherently good? If we start from that premise, it changes the whole journey of finding spiritual fulfillment as a householder. Because it says is that we can achieve spiritual freedom and fulfillment and still live in the world. Uh, one thing I, I was remind, it's worth just all, all, all of us to remember, is that the ancient tradition was very clear that the house, that the life of the household was more elevated than the life of the Renzi. And the reason for that is because to live spiritually, when you deal with the messiness of children and uh, jobs and rent and uh, economic crisis, you're not separated from all that. So in a sense, a householder has a greater challenge of integrating these, uh, integrating this worldview into their experience. I would then, you asked me how the question again, and it was almost a practical approach, and you didn't necessarily say yoga students. Uh, you asked, you, you were a little more general in the question, if I'm not mistaken. Is that right? Yes. Um, yeah, yeah. So uh, start with the worldview. 
I'm very, I feel very strongly about what I'm about to tell you now. I, there's two things next that I would say. The next thing is, I don't think you can live in such a way where you ultimately fulfill your potential for who you can be without asking yourself and finding the questions to the key answers. Those questions are ones that we've all heard before. Questions like, why am I here? Who am I? Uh, what's my purpose in life? What really matters? What doesn't matter? Until we have really taken the time to hear our heart's answers to those questions, I don't think we can be, I don't think anyone can be truly happy. And that's true for meditators as well as it is for corporate executives. It really doesn't matter what, if you have a spiritual life, you don't have a spiritual life. If you haven't had an opportunity to ask yourself, why am I here? What, what do I need to do? You know, what, what's my way of honoring the, the, the blessing of life that I've been given? Uh, I don't think until you take the time to answer those questions, can you be truly satisfied? Uh, it's certainly true in my own experience. I've always been an observer of the world, and that's true of um, uh, what I've noticed is people with tremendous amounts of money, people who are poor. It really doesn't matter unless we have a sense of understanding of the purpose of our life. And the third thing I would say is that it's all about, um, it's absolutely essential that we take time away from the world. We close our eyes and either lay down and deeply relax or sit up and meditate. I truly do not believe that we can ultimately find fulfillment if all we are um, seeing and experiencing is the world that our five senses perceive. Uh, I just read recently, because I, I had always been taught that the senses perceive about 20% existence. Well, the latest finding is about 5%. 5% of reality is material. And so this is what your senses perceive. Unless we take time away Find a way, and of course, I would still tell you that meditation is the most direct way. Uh, unless we take the time to still our thoughts and to move inward and to be, feel touched by something that is everlasting, never changing, uh, that endures, and that is really the very light and source of creation itself, I don't, I think happiness will continue to be elusive for people. So those are the three points, worldview, ask the big questions, and then take time for silence. Yeah. So, Raj, you've been offering the Yoga for Fulfill- Fulfill- Fulfillment course for a number of years, and most of us out there want to live our, live our lives as fully as possible, which is one of the components of moksha, as you mentioned. Yeah. It gets in the way of achieving our desires. Are you asking about specifically the desire for moksha or just uh, um, of, of all kinds? Um, of all kinds. I would say more, I would say, starting with, like, you know, um, dharma. Mm-hmm. Well, there are, there are several things involved, and that's why um, I had to write a book with six sections in it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, <laughs> if it was just as simple as telling you that it exists and you could yeah. just go out there and be it, then it would only need one section. It could have been pretty short. Uh, and so very much, you know, the book itself tries to walk people through this process because there's many things involved. 
uh, about having the kind of life that we all want. And, uh, and a life that actually in which we experience fulfillment at all four desires. Uh, so first of all, as I said, the key thing is understanding, uh, the first step really is this foundation of purpose. And understand that all of our desires must serve our soul's purpose. And, and, um, that really is the starting point. Um, if we get that, uh, there's a couple of basic tenets of the Vedic tradition that I haven't yet said. So let me just first start there. Because what it says is that each of us is a unique being, a jiva. And the literal mean is, in Sanskrit, the word is jiva. It means individual, individual soul. And that soul comes in with the unique purpose. And how it expresses itself in the world is these four desires. And they will be unique to all of us. You know, I, I, I just read about him yesterday, and, and uh, he said something very interesting, and it really sparked something for me. He, what he said was this. He said, I am more ambitious for a reputation, for personal courage, than anything else in the world. And if you think about it, if you could just use, this is what I call like a Dharma code. This is his soul's purpose. The idea of personal courage above everything else. And that shaped every aspect of his life. Now imagine then really allowing every desire uh, that you act on and that you commit to acting on coming out of a singular purpose. That already begins to t- that already begins to create a quality of focus around the desires you pick as important. So that's that's the first thing. Uh, we can go into great depth, and and this is really almost the last third of the book. Or, a big section of the book dealing with resistance. Mm-hmm. The thing that also, you know, I cite in the book some stories. Uh, there's one example of someone who uh, was having health issues and really wanted to cure them, but was actually going very much, his health was actually going in the opposite direction. And it, when we looked at that story, you really see that he was making choices that weren't ultimately fulfilling his desire, his conscious desire at least, to get healthy. Another individual who wanted a relationship, but in, on, the, on the other hand, she was very frightened of relationship and uh, above else wanted to be safe. So what we also have to look at is our contrary desires. Uh, we may want something consciously, but unconsciously, we are more shaped by what we want unconsciously than what we want consciously. So those are the things, at least as a, as a way of beginning the discussion, I can tell you, those are key. Those are key ideas uh, about becoming more uh, effective at fulfilling our desires. Mm. So these, um, the contrary desires you mentioned, um, you say they are um, what gets in the way when we're actually sitting down and taking time to, for example. Um, complete the activity that you call like finding your Dharma code because I found that extremely challenging and that's in the very early on in the book one of the first um, like yes. contemplative um, exercises you offer. Indeed. Um, well, I don't know. I wouldn't necessarily it's a contrary desire. I think, you know, um, to be honest, uh, uh, it's Martina, right? Yes. Martina, I, I, the, the, uh, the truth is that the, the idea of finding or knowing or investigating our life's purpose 
is not something we've had much experience with. I think very, very few of us have been asked to do that. Uh, we were never encouraged to do it in school. Uh, more than likely, a few of our, our parents didn't suggest we do it. And then it comes to something like that, and in and, and, and making a commitment to trying to decipher this kind of inapus that you were born with, it is challenging. Uh, and I do think, um, be honest, to be very honest with you, uh, knowing I believe that it's the most difficult element in the book, I really tried to find a way not to make it the first piece of the book. Um, but because it's the foundation, I really had no way of avoiding, no way to 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 do it any other way. Honestly, uh, I think it's about a controversy. I think it's that we don't, we just haven't had uh, enough uh, time, or we haven't had the thought around it being essential, and that that's why it, it is as challenging as it is. One thing I encourage people to do is just get through it, because. Uh, two steps later, when you do, when we do unearth uh, a contrary, de- a contrary desire, um, that's when we can more or less double back and review the the Dharma code, review what we tried to write in our practice, our soul's purpose. I would be content if really you just got a bad uh, draft of a Dharma code in the beginning. You keep going through the book. And as you work all the other processes in the book and they begin to percolate and uh, un- un- unwind or uh, they begin to reveal more about yourself as you practice the meditations I describe in the book or even at, or the yoga nidra, the more often you relax, the more the right answer, the right dharma code, the clear seeing to it will reveal itself. The main thing is just start and then in time it will get refined. That's really helpful um, advice because I know when I was working on this, that piece, I had the sense that it had to be the perfect the first time that I drafted mm-hmm. it. Yeah, me too, actually. <laughs> me too. I think we all feel that. You know, we'll come to it. I mean, even if it was, I, I, you know, while we're, on the, while we're on the topic, I would say that give yourself three months or even six months, provided you finish the book. Um, the rest of the book will reveal quite a bit. Uh, about who you really are so that you'll have a chance to get in continuing insight and that will unfold. Uh, so I, I'm glad we take, we took the pressure off of you today. Mm-hmm. <laughs> now you can, uh, you can just really, uh, just move forward and continue to reconsider it. But, um, uh, you know, the, the fact is that if you find, um, <clears throat> if you find, uh, if you are, in fact, devoting time to these other practices and to your yoga and to relaxation, and you, and you continue to ask yourself that question, a nice thing to do is write your first bad draft, or we're not sure how good a draft of your Dharma code. Just write it and put it by your bedstand, and when you go to bed at night, have it be the last thing you see. And, uh, you know, go to sleep repeating it to yourself and see if it feels true. Over time, your unconscious will speak to you, and it will tell you what you need it to be what it needs to be. So would this strategy be um, part of uh, what you mentioned or what you call in your book to um, approach life skillfully? If we're living um, in a world that is not really um, like dedicated or supportive of our happiness and security? <clears throat> you know, it, 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 it's really critical. There's, two, there's, two, there's a couple of really ideas. 
important ideas. And, you know, on the one hand, earlier in this conversation, I mentioned the tantric worldview that says we're living in heavens. And the reality is that most of us don't see it that way. At least most of the time we don't. Things are changing. There's loss. There's disappointment. There's, um, you know, we create expectations that are not always met. And there are, there are all sorts of kinds of conditions that can take place uh, that make it difficult, that make life challenging. Uh, one of the reasons that a life's purpose, uh, uh, uncovering our own individual life purpose has become so important is, and this is perhaps a radical shift, what I'm about to say, uh, it's a different, it's a fundamentally different approach to life, which says rather than your main strategy for life being having as many of the things as you want as possible and avoiding as many of the things as you don't want as possible. Right? That's most of our strategy of life. Yeah. I want the things I like. I want to avoid the things I don't like. Mm-hmm. In the yoga tradition, ragas and devashas, right? Yeah, that's, that sounds totally yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, But what... I would, I would tell you that the yoga tradition, and again, spelled out so explicitly in the Bhagavad Gita, mm-hmm. says, don't live that way. You're ba- you will always suffer if you live that way. Instead, live to fulfill your purpose. And understand that living your purpose, like if I use the words of Churchill, just he was, uh, the idea of personal courage, just wanting to embody personal courage, that's not about result. That's about a process. That's about committing to living the process of your life in a specific way. Mm-hmm. It takes so much of the weight off of the outcome of your efforts and it instead allows you to focus on your commitment to living life in a specific way. So that's, that's a key point when it comes to, um, having, uh, to living more skillfully. Mm-hmm. To live more skillfully means to give up the attachments and the aversions. And instead, focus on the purpose. And the other piece, of course, um, that is one of the later parts of the book, uh, in which we've done a lot of work and I've asked people to make a commitment to achieving something in the next six to 18 months that will serve their soul. And it can be any one of the four desires, whether it's uh, health-related or financial-related or your job, your work, or your life purpose. Uh, one of the things I ask uh, people to do is then you have to sooner or later embrace the idea of Vairagya. Vairagya is uh, one of the main, main teachings of yoga, which says that we are unattached to the results of our efforts. Focus on our life purpose and then live life uh, in a way in which we understand or which we apply this idea of dispassion, of putting out the best efforts we possibly can while not being uh, attached to the outcome of those efforts. And ultimately, skillful living skillfully means being guided by the light that is in each of us uh, and uh, and not so much by what commercial advertising and corporations and politicians tell us we should want, but rather hearing the voice of our own heart, our own conscience. That's what living skillfully means. That's what the yoga tradition points to is the keys to living skillfully. You know, you talked about the Bhagavad Gita, and one of the things that came to mind was um, it's better to live your own dharma than live the dharma of someone else. 
Yeah. So I think that's, you know, that, that pathway to, to living in a place that's more in our hearts. That's right. That's right. I mean, again, I said it earlier, but it's worth restating because I know so much of your audience, you know, practices yoga. I make the case that yoga is as much about uh, realizing a state of heightened awareness while we're practicing as it is ultimately having the clarity to live our life uh, and consistently respond to our inner conscience. Uh, you know, at any given moment, there's choice. You and I, we're all choosing to do this right now. In, in, in conjunction with that, we're also choosing to sit the way we're sitting and to say the things we say. We also choose, maybe after this interview, to respond to the challenges in our life in different ways. Some of us will avoid them. Some of us will just go on the Internet and surf the Internet for three hours and try and forget about what's on our minds or hearts. And so all of life is a choice. The key is how do you, you know, and the key is that the choices you make shape your destiny. And ultimately, if your choices are driven by conscience, that fulfills the destiny that you are fully, that, that speaks to fulfilling your potential. And also, that's very clear in the Gita, and I've said it, but again, it is that when you're serving your highest best interests, you're serving the whole. You're serving the greater good at the same time. And conscience is really the heart and uh, being able to listen to our conscience and hearing our conscience is really what the practice of yoga is for. So out of all this, um, let's come to our last um, question. Um, we'd be interested to know what the most um, resonant, um, what, what is the most resonant teaching out of this wealth of, of, of teachings and um, philosophy that you have received from your um, teachers? Like if they aim one thing. Oh, one thing? Oh, you've noticed I've, I, I take a long time to answer questions. So <laughs> Um, here's what I, let me just say this. Um, my teachers have given me a tremendous amount of actual, uh, knowledge, tantric, Vedic, yogic knowledge. But ultimately, what their highest teaching, at least the one that's made the largest, the most significant impression on me, is their demeanor, their way of being. And, in, in both, in both cases, I've studied with two masters, and both of whom, uh, embodied a love of life, joyousness, uh, an expansiveness, a kind of robust uh, pa passion, and uh, vitality, and uh, energy, and ambition, and yet deeply, deeply reverent people, both of whom loved children, loved and and and, and loved joyousness, and loved. Everything about life, but at the same time, each practiced about three hours a day. And we clearly had a relationship to something that was beyond this world. So if they have impressed anything on me, what I would say is the most significant thing they've impressed upon me, is their being, their actual way of being. And I would tell you that humility and joy and fearlessness are the embodies of, is the embodiment of this tradition. This, and when I say this tradition, we're all really coming from one place. Uh, yes, there's many lineages and many teachers, but, you know, there's pretty much one, one being gets credit as being the source of yoga, yoga and that's Shiva. 
It's, there's one yogi, and the Lord himself gave us yoga. So I would say there's actually one tradition, many paths to it. Um, it's about joy, and it's about fearlessness, and it's about uh, having uh, having a, a relationship to the sacred in which it's vibrant and real and present in one's life. And from that, the sign that one is, the sign that all of that is working is that you're humble and that you don't take yourself too seriously and um, um, that you, I, I would even say for myself, that you never really get either this idea or notion that there's any end in the path. There's just the moment and the joy unfolding from this moment and the wish and the desire to express the fullness of your soul into the world. Great. Thank you so much, Rod. Um, Thank you. Yeah, I guess that leaves me with just to say thank you for this really inspiring um, conversation. And um, we've seen on your schedule that you'll be in in Seattle in December from the 14th to the 16th at Eight Limbs Yoga. That's correct. That's not so far from you guys. No, that's pretty close. We're looking forward to that. Yes. Good. Well, I hope to see you there. Good. And, and, uh, yeah, and I'm, I'm planning actually 2013 to come up to, uh, to Canada, possibly Vancouver, so we can talk. Oh, great. Great. Yes. Well, thank you so much. And, and thank you for taking the time to read the book and carry on with your Dharma code. Don't worry. If you just be willing to, for it to evolve, it will. That soul's purpose is there. In time, it'll be uncovered. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. And thank you so much for listening to Dirty Point today. Thank you for listening to Drishti Point. We dedicate our efforts to the health and happiness of our listeners and for the health and happiness of all living beings. <laughs>